The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Tony Bernhard is a graduate of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center's Community Dharma Leader Program. He sits on the planning committee for the Sati Center, leads sitting group, and teaches Dharma in Davis, California. Welcome. Thank you. Although I, I, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here, although I um, live in Davis, this feels like my home sangha. In fact, I'm here tonight, I'll be here tomorrow, and then I'll be here Saturday. The, the thing that uh, uh, is happening Saturday on Dharma art is striking. I've seen um, uh, Joan's presentation, if you have any interest in art at all. Uh, she taught at Princeton in the second half of the 20th century and hung out with all the New York artists. And she says that all those guys were doing Dharma art. Jasper Johns and Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock and all those guys were doing serious, they were doing as, you know, a serious effort at expressing the Dharma in, uh, abstract expressionism and pop art and it's a, it's a pretty impressive, but she starts back, uh, 2500 years ago. Anyway, just a plug for the, uh, for the event on Saturday, which is pretty nice. Um, tomorrow, for, for I don't know whether anyone here is planning on being here tomorrow, Gil is doing a day long on, um, on karma, and I'm working with him on that, on that class. And so I did a, uh, a discussion group. We had a discussion group last Friday on karma. So my, my mind has been a swim with <laughs> karma and uh, the, uh, the Buddhist perspective and teachings on karma. And so I thought I would, I would um, address it tonight um, because it really in some ways is central to the practice that we're doing, um, just the notion of it. Uh, but um, one of the, I, I like to recall... Uh, Ayakema, who was a Theravadan nun who, who uh, lived in the last century, um, used to say that anything beyond the, the uh, Four Noble Truths was excess Dharma. Really, everything plugs in to the Four Noble Truths, and karma does as well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about karma and then about uh, how it, how it uh, functions in the context of our practice and the context of the Four Noble Truths. In, in the West, the, just the, the phrase karma has become so new agey and we all have all kinds of associations with it. We think there's you know, good karma and bad karma. We have that sort of notion. Um, good karma really is the, the experience that we like and bad karma is the experience we don't like. Um, karma, from the, the Buddhist point of view, was almost mechanical. It's like gravity or, you know, another law of nature. So it'd be like saying good gravity and bad gravity. You know, if you're, if you're the road runner, you know, in a cartoon and you run off the cliff and all of a sudden, you know, that bad gravity. <laughs> but if it keeps us here on the earth rather than floating off into space, good gravity. Um, so it depends on our, our perspective. Um, and we also have this, this notion, you just, just see if, if, if this resonates with you at all, you know, the karma uh, is sort of um, payback for how we behave. It's the reward or punishment for 
whether we're good or bad. Isn't that sort of out there? We have that, that, that sense. So good karma comes from being good and bad karma comes from being bad. I'm not quite sure how that works with gravity, but, um, <clears throat> but for the, for the, the Buddha, actually karma was, uh, much more specific. It was a more specific, uh, kind of, um, phenomenon. It, it had to do with intention. Um, karma really is intention in the Buddha's, uh, understanding of things and his perception of things. So that if you, if you intend, if you want, if you did everything you could to help someone, just didn't spare any effort, uh, used every resource available and it failed, you wouldn't feel remorse. You'd go, you know, I, you know might feel sad, but you, but you would, you wouldn't feel remorse like you'd somehow, uh, you know, pulled a punch or something. Um, if if you wish someone harm and then something happens to them you can feel bad even if you you know even if even if you didn't have anything to do with the event for the buddha the intention itself uh was the determining factor in how we um experienced um, how we set up our future events for the for the Buddha, it, it's pretty simple. You know, does it matter what we do? Does it make a difference what we do? And of course, we all act as if it does, you know, because if we undertake to learn something, maybe a musical instrument or a, another language, or um, to develop any particular skill, you know, we work at it, and we have this notion that if we apply effort, over time we will make a difference. And it's the same, it's the same with, with karma. What we do in terms of our intention, uh, if we wish people well, uh, it's a better feeling than wishing someone ill, just on, in the immediate experience. And of course, usually if you're wishing someone well, You'll, boy, I was just about to use some social science, <laughs> I was going to say emit behavior. That's because I did too much time uh, in social science. <laughs> um, you, you'll actually act in ways that are, that are pleasant. And, and of course, the, the response will be uh, in terms of that behavior. So we sort of set up the world uh, with our behavior, but with our intention, more specifically. Now, the Buddha says, you know, in the, in the, uh, the Four Noble Truths, the first element is that dissatisfaction is a feature of our experience. It's a feature of our life. Sometimes we don't want to hear that. We'd like to, we, you know, the purpose of all of what we do is to try to get rid of that. But his, his um, uh, first observation is that it's built in because, second noble truth, we, we want things different than they are. That wanting itself is painful. You know, if, you, if what you want, 
and, and it, it can be really profound and really heavy. You know, in a situation of grief, when you lose someone uh, dear, when you really want things different than they are, it can, it can reduce you to tears. It, it can be very painful. Well, most of our experience isn't quite that <clears throat> excuse me, intense. But, you know, not getting what you want can make you a little irritated, miffed, angry. Um, and those experiences are unpleasant in and of themselves. And usually if we act out of anger, we don't help ourselves or, or, or the people that we're, that we're interacting with. But the third truth is that is the Buddha's um, contention that there can be an end to that dissatisfaction, an end to the suffering. The dissatisfaction is often translated, the word that I'm tra- translating is dukkha, uh, is the Pali word, Pali, uh, P-A-L-I, is the language that the, uh, um, that's close to what the Buddha spoke. Dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it's also translated as just dissatisfaction, sometimes disappointment. He says there, can, there is an end. An end is possible. He said if it weren't possible to put an end to your suffering, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask you to make the effort. But because it's possible, I ask you to make the effort. And he outlined the program. The Eightfold Path. When I first heard Eightfold Path, I thought that was too many. Um, Because I I read the list once, I couldn't remember it. I read it twice, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember all eight of them for quite a while. (laughs) Um, But it's the the Buddhist program. It's the, the, um, the path to the end of suffering. And the elements there that we pick up initially here are the, the elements that have to do with meditation. Um, mindfulness is one of the elements of the path and concentration, concentration or stability of mind uh, are two of the elements and a third is effort. It takes effort in case you haven't noticed. Um, Meditating is um, not like a reverie, not like a daydream. It's, it takes some effort to do. So those are three, three of the elements of the path, and those are the elements that we usually pick up and pay attention to. The other elements are interesting. Um, first one is, is uh, uh, understanding, correct understanding, or skillful understanding and by you know the the word that is that's translated often as right understanding and right intention right speech etc is the Pali word is sama and actually it can be translated in a lot of ways but what it means is understanding that that doesn't lead to more suffering that doesn't lead to more satisfa- uh, dissatisfaction it means understanding things just as they are not about how they should be, how we'd like them to be, how they, you know, how they got botched up in the first place. Um, as the Buddha says, you can't find a beginning to that. 
no matter how far back you go, you can't find a beginning to when things initially got off track. Um, but it has to do with, with understanding that doesn't make things worse, that doesn't add to the suffering. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Intention is the second one. Right intention, skillful intention. Intention that does not enhance our suffering, the dissatisfaction we experience in the world. And so karma is built into the Eightfold Path. The, the, the other three elements are usually, um, uh, well, it's speech, action, and livelihood. Right speech or skillful speech, uh, action, and livelihood. And these are elements that um, we tend to overlook because we, we misunderstand them um, primarily because in Western culture we've got commandments on the brain. We've got a lot of commandments. I, can't, I still can't remember the ten of them. I got the Eightfold Path finally, but I can't get all ten of the commandments. But with commandments, the idea is it's about judgment. You know? Um, right or wrong, good or bad. And it always, I, I always sort of think that in order for that to work, you have to have somebody who's making a list and checking it twice, you know, and, uh, and then somebody else is responsible for enforcing the good or bad. With, with the Eightfold Path, the issue has to do with action that does not enhance our suffering or the suffering of others the dissatisfaction of, that we experience in our lives, that we don't make it worse. And this is the, the elements of speech, action, and livelihood are the, the um, base on which the, the precepts, uh, the Buddhist precepts are founded. The precepts are um, a set of five practice guides for behavior. It's not about judgment. So, for example, the first one has to do with killing. And the idea is not that killing is wrong or right. It's that the practice is to not take life, to not cause harm. And when we make that effort, we discover all the impulses in ourselves that lead us to swat at the mosquito and, the, you know, and, and strike back verbally or in what other ways at others. But the elements of, of moral restraints, the Pali word is sila, S-I-L-A. And this, this is the part that we, we tend to touch only occasionally in, um, uh, in meditation circles because it sort of has that taste of uh, commandments going. Um, and a lot of us are uneasy with commandments. This has to do with practice, and it's about our own behavior, and it doesn't matter. And it's about our intention. Um, so what I'd like to do, usually people talk about sila in terms of the precepts and the vows that are taken as, as elements of practice. But I'd like to talk about it from a slightly different uh, 
approach, which is what the, the Buddha called the ten actions that are not in accord with the Dharma. The ten behaviors that are not in accord with the Dharma. These are the things which will make things worse for you because of, of the intention that generates the behavior. So there, there are, are you know, three clusters, body, speech, and mind. In body, there are three elements. And the first is, is killing. And, and I think what I'll do is the Buddha uh, talks about them. I'll, I'll just read his, his description because these are more or less uh, his words. Um, he says, here someone kills living beings, is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, and merciless to living beings. Merciless. No compassion, no um, feeling for the other being. The point here is that when, one, when you do something like that, and we've all been in that with, you know, um, with animals at some level, you know, even if it's just taking a, an antibiotic and knocking out several hundred thousand bacterium. Um, but, you know, people generally encounter issues with ants and bugs and stuff like that. And, um, but the quality of our heart that we bring to our interaction with other beings, if if we are, if we're going to practice not harming, then we're going to bump up against all of the the impulses that arise in us to slap the mosquito, or I don't know what kinds of things you might do or have done in the past. But we we've all we've all taken a shot at one way or another at other beings out of out of anger or ill will. The second element, he says, that, that's not in accord with the Dharma, taking what is not freely given. And usually that is, that's understood to mean some, roughly about, about stealing. But it's really about uh, our own greed, our wanting. It's not about the behavior. It's not about the action of taking. It's about that wanting that will lead us to take something that's not freely given. In The Kite Runner, you read The Kite Runner, I think the boy's father says there's only one crime, really, one sin, and that's theft, and then everything else is when you kill someone, you're taking their life, and when you, when you lie to someone, you're taking their right to the truth. Taking what is not freely given is not just about, you know, taking home paper from the office or whatever, or picking up tennis balls that happen to be on the ground outside the tennis courts, or, you know. Because it applies also to time, uh, resources, attention. And it has to do with, with that wanting, again. And so to, to work with that craving, that desire for something. To, if you resolve, if you do it as a practice and resolve not to take what is not freely given, you bump up against those impulses which arise in all of us. Um, and so in a way, 
your behavior off the cushion becomes uh, a mindfulness meditation of sorts. Because you notice those impulses, because you're restraining them. And so it's not so much a good or a bad, but it's a mindfulness like when you sit and pay attention to your breath and the, and the first thing you notice is that it's hard. <laughs> the mind goes off into la-la land. So you, you bump up against the tendency of the mind and the way the mind works. So taking what is not freely given. And the third is... Um, Miscon- misconduct in sensual pleasures. And in this, in this instance, he's specifically talking about sexual misconduct. And for him, at this time, he, it had to do with uh, having sex with women who are protected by their mother, father, mother and father, brother, sister, relative, someone who's still young, um, or who are garlanded in token of betrothal. But it has to do with Boy, sexual energy is so powerful that you know you can. It's it's almost just pure. The desire is so strong. Um, that we often uh, take action in ways that harm ourselves or others or both. You know the uh, Ajahn Jumian, who's a, a Thai forest monk. Um, makes the analogy with desire. He says, it's like a moth in the flame. For the moth, only the flame is bright. Everything else is dark. Can't see anything but the flame. And of course, the moth doesn't see, is not aware of the compulsion within it to fly to that because it's so lost in the, you know, it's enthralled with the flame. And so it is with us. With, with any object of desire. Um, you know, we become so enthralled with the object that we don't even notice the compulsion for it. So when we resolve to restrain ourselves, to restrain our behavior as a matter of practice, then we bump up against it and it becomes visible. You know, I think of the guy who, um, who killed Michael Jackson's father not Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan's father, for his Lexus. His father was sitting in the car and the guy said, gee, I want that car. All he could see was the car, not even, you know. I mean, it wasn't a high probability <laughs> of success, that kind of, that kind of activity. Um, but, you know, not able to see past the object of desire. So the intention here, these, these three kinds of action, he says, which are not in accordance with the Dharma, which cause more suffering for ourselves and others. Uh, killing, taking what's not freely given, and um, misconduct and sensual pleasures. And we, you know, we can expand that actually to a lot. Misconduct and sensual pleasures applies in a lot of realms. Um, I have a problem with ice cream. I mean, I just, uh, what can I say? And I, you know, I actually thought I could beat it by buying an ice cream maker. Is that, 
Isn't that pathetic? Isn't that what people do when they... <laughs> so I thought, I thought, well, never mind. But essentially, you know, it's, you know, um, misconduct and sensual pleasure is not so much wrong. It's just that it doesn't lead to the cessation of suffering, to the cessation of dissatisfaction. <clears throat> so those are the elements of, of action. And he has, there are, when it comes to speech, there are four kinds of speech which are not helpful, which, which lead to suffering and dissatisfaction. The first is, is um, speaking falsely, um, which is not just a matter, you know, we're not talking about uh, whether or not it's right or wrong or should you tell a, you know, a little white lie and those kinds. This is not a philosophical thing. The issue here is when you are misrepresenting your true understanding of the way things are, what is, there's, a, there's a motivation, there's an intention there. We're back to intention again. Um, I've, I have conversations with my granddaughter about, she's six, about whether exaggeration is a form of lying. We've had that conversation twice. Interesting, you know, to even consider that. Why would you want to exaggerate? You know, usually there's, there's, there's a motive going on. There's an intention there. Maybe puff yourself up a little bit or make something bigger and, you know, more important or, or less important or something other than. But usually that kind of, when you're, when you're, when you're speaking in ways that are not in accord with your true understanding, when you're misrepresenting things, there's an intention there. There's a reason. And what we want to do is to um, become aware of that. Because that greed, that wanting, whatever it is, or the not wanting, uh, whatever it is, is unpleasant uh, in itself and doesn't lead to pleasant things. We'll talk about it in a bit. So false speech, uh, malicious speech, speech which is intended to harm, to cause, to cause pain. You know. And again, it's not just the words, it's not just what's spoken, it's the intention behind it. You know, out of anger or ill will, we wish harm upon another. Harsh speech. Um, speech that's offensive. You know, to intentionally speak in ways that uh, that create offense. And, and, and create painful experience for others. Um, and the, the, the fourth of the, uh, the kinds of speech that are not in accord with the Dharma, the fourth is um, pointless speech. Ever do any of that? <laughs> just sort of, you know, just engage the mouth. <laughs> um, 
you know, gossip and idle chatter and um, and usually it's it's for you know there's there's purposes of you know underlying intentions of uh, being friendly, creating some particular kind of experience, <clears throat> which when it doesn't happen, of course, or if it doesn't happen the way we want it, or if it happens the way we don't want it, you know, can lead to dissatisfaction and irritation. So the kinds of speech that the Buddha was talking about that are that are uh, not in accord with the Dharma, that do uh, enhance dissatisfaction, enhance suffering, enhance unpleasant experience, add to it, and don't attenuate the suffering or the, the dissatisfaction that we experience. Um, speaking falsely, harshly, maliciously, and pointlessly. I like the pointless one myself. Um, and then there are, there are three behaviors of the mind. And they're interesting because you, you can't see them really in another person except, except through a behavior that they um, perform. The first is any kind of uh, covetousness, wanting, because that leads to, um, you know, usually what we want is pleasant experience, right? We like the good stuff and we don't like the bad stuff. Anybody got it the other way around? You know, we like pleasant experience. We, we don't like unpleasant experience. And so when pleasant experience arises, we try to make it last and we try to create pleasant experience and we spend most of our time doing that, trying to get what we want, which is more pleasant experience. Sometimes it can be silly. I remember when I was, I, I just have a very vivid recollection of when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, getting a, a piece of chocolate, something that was so good, I thought I, I had to make it last forever. And so I took such small bites, I couldn't taste it. <laughs> I realized how futile that was. Covetousness, craving, the, it's the cause of uh, the cause of dissatisfaction. It is dissatisfaction in itself. And then ill will or anger is the second, which you know, anger. Sometimes anger makes people feel empowered and strong, but usually it's a counter irritant. It's like scratching a mosquito bite. You know, it actually isn't pleasant. If you really pay attention, it's a counter irritant, and eventually you can tear yourself up. So ill will is the same uh, as a, as a mental intention. So these are the intentions, and the, the last, the, the last one, is the biggest. It's it's um, wrong view, delusion, and this really, in a way, is at the heart of our suffering because we don't see things as, as they are. We see things as we, in terms of how we'd like them to be. Right view is the first element on the Eightfold Path. When we think that um, we can make ourselves happy by getting what we want, 
by chasing what we want. Um, it always makes me realize what a slow learner I am. <laughs> you know, it's not like any of us have just started out trying this experiment of making ourselves happy by trying to get what we want. Anybody? <laughs> you know, I mean, we're, but we keep doing it. Because <laughs> that's, you know, um, we think things. The Buddha said that the, that the uh, nature of all of our experience is that it's impermanent. It's, it, it's incapable of being satisfying because it's impermanent and changing. The pleasant stuff is not going to last and the unpleasant stuff is going to come. And it's just an undifferentiated stream of experience. And we think of it as permanent, full of things which are you know, in place. And if something is permanent, it suggests that maybe we can be satisfied. Maybe we can... Um, get something, hold on to it happily ever after. Um, not seeing things the way they are is at the heart of, of our suffering. One of the things that we, that we do um, in order to not even notice our own suffering, our own dissatisfaction, we think that the world has got a lot of problems. We're okay. The world's got a lot of problems. Need to be fixed. Don't we think that? Anybody here not think that? I mean, that's really... There's, there's a lot wrong out there. We're okay. But, and and that's, that's, you know, in, in an interesting way, that's the same candle, you know, moth and flame business because we're so enthralled with the idea that there's something wrong out there that our relationship to it, really, it's, it's, you know, we may think something is wrong, someone else may think it's okay, and we're not noticing that experience of dissatisfaction in ourselves. We're projecting it out onto the world as if it's separate from us. Does that make sense? So we, you know, what are the things that are wrong with the world? There's the environment, it's a mess, politics, right? nuclear weapons, or, or nuclear weapons. It's a typo. Everybody's priorities, all messed up, right? We're all, not all messed up. It's all problems out there. And yet the world, in a very real way, couldn't be any different than it is. It couldn't be. This instant couldn't be different than it is, given the instant just before it, and given the instant just before that and before that. So it's unfolded according to law, you know, like the, you know, the laws of... uh, I won't say motion, but the laws of, of the, the universe. It unfolds in accord with its own uh, nature and couldn't be different than it is. And our relationship to it, um, you know, we may see things that can be done to reduce the suffering and the, the unsatisfactory experience of others and ourselves. 
and we certainly can do those things. But the experience that comes to us is a given. And so our delusion is that fixing the world, setting it up according to our preferences, will make us happy and be satisfying and straighten things out. Delusion doesn't just happen. It's not something that's laid on us. It's something we do. By not seeing things just simply as they are, which is where our practice comes in, where the sitting practice comes in, and where the, you know, the, last, the last three elements of the Eightfold Path come in, and where our intention comes in. What are we, what are we doing in this practice? What are we here for? The potential here, the Buddha says, is for freedom from that suffering by not making it worse ourselves, by not acting in ways that harm ourselves or others, that make our experience uh, unpleasant. Because when when we treat people badly, they don't particularly treat us well in return. We, we may have noticed it and we may just believe it. Uh, but you can, you can notice it when you treat people well. Um, I a, I, in Davis, we had the, the power and the, the phones and the heat were out for, in our house for a couple of days. And when the, the phone people finally showed up, they were just really cranky. They'd been working, you know, 16, 18 hour days and they were used to people screaming at them and complaining. If you treat them nice, boy, they'll just make sure everything works fine and they'll be happy about it. I mean, you can just see it in a, in a concrete situation. So karma is about the intention we bring to our practice, to our life off the cushion, to the way we behave. And it's about, and, and so when we talk about uh, moral restraint, we talk about not just, you know, going with whatever impulse arises in us because all all kinds of impulses arise. And not because it's bad, not because there's a judgment involved and that we'll, you know, pat ourselves on the head if we're good, but because what the Buddha uses a phrase, he calls it the bliss of blamelessness. and the the bliss of blamelessness and the freedom that comes from not not trying to pretend that things are different than they are, just to recognize how things are, which is what we are doing when we sit in our practice. We learn that our sensations are our sensations. Our thoughts are just our thoughts. And we can see them without getting lost in them, without assuming that they represent the world the way, they, the, way the world is. Yeah. 
so that the intention that we bring to any action, to any moment, the intention we bring to every moment determines how we feel about that moment, how we experience that moment. And, and it determines, you know, if, if what you do is um, reject painful experience and try to make it go away, you might be, you might be successful. Next time, unpleasant experience comes again, you know, you'll be right back in the same boat. You get some relief, but not freedom. Not freedom from that reactivity. So the, you know, the, the idea here with, with karma and sila, karma and the moral restraint, which comes directly um, from an understanding of karma, which underlies, <clears throat> which underlies the teachings, um, is that freedom, true freedom, means not being at the mercy of whatever arises in your life. Which means when it's pleasant, you don't have to try to make it last longer. And when it's unpleasant, you know, it will go on its own. And you can work, you know, it's not that you don't need to work to make things more pleasant. The Dalai Lama says about, about Tibet, he'll do everything he can to free Tibet. And if not, he did everything he could. The intention is, is uh, at the heart so let me just uh, let me just invite some some questions or conversations or thoughts or wonderments because it's it's you know uh, karma is not usually understood just as intention and there may be some questions particularly from people who are who are newer in the practice. Does this make sense at all? Or is it just me rambling? Please. Um, so I have a question about real world, or not, I guess not theoretical, but mm-hmm. um, like actual experience sure. of helping, mm-hmm. which... Um, I find in real life is actually a lot more complicated. So um, the intention to be compassionate to someone who is in pain or suffering or to give someone something mm-hmm. who is in desperate need for something mm-hmm. is usually a very complicated um, interaction and kind of often wind up in a lot more suffering afterwards if the, you know, if the other party wants more help uh-huh. or... I don't know. I mean, there are a whole lot of sort of strange things that follow from one person helping the other person in sort of when there's need. Mm-hmm. Well, compassion, um, in, in this instance, compassion, uh, if it balances with wisdom, with seeing what's there, if it's, if it's being motivated by a desire to be noticed as a compassionate person, there's self in there. It's not just the compassionate motivation. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. In almost every action you find yourself engaged in, there's more than one intention going. I mean, you can find yourself at a meeting and your intention at the meeting is, you know, you might say my intention is to do X. But being at that meeting is maybe it's, you know, your intention is to stay employed. And so you wind up at, so there's, 
you know, and to, to provide, um, you know, support for your family. I mean, so it could be a variety of intentions and it could be to appear good in front of the boss. There could be a dozen, two dozen different intentions in any action. And those are the ones that we don't notice. Those are the ones that complicate things because we're acting, we're acting out on them. Um, sometimes, uh, when, when we, um, see someone who's suffering, the, there's a compassionate response to the, to the suffering individual, but there can also be anger if we see someone causing the suffering. So there can be anger directed at someone else. Um, so it is, it is more complicated. And, and the idea is to become mindful of your intention uh, because really that's where, where, we get, where we get into trouble with unacknowledged intention. Does that make any sense? Can I disagree? <laughs> sure, you certainly may. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I, I agree that you... I just have seen cases and with people who are particularly empathetic, like my mother is very strongly empathetic. Some people are almost react reflexively. They feel other people's emotions and they just like respond. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily um, that they want something or that they have whatever. It's almost it's almost reflexive. There can be right. The, the impulse can be can can be automatic. In fact, the impulse arises automatically when you experience the suffering of another. Often we don't even experience it. Someone can be suffering and we don't notice because we're so um, beguiled by our own needs and wants. But, you know, you can be compassionate for, you can, you can experience the suffering of someone and then say, well, you know what you need to do? You know, and then you've got a whole program of activity for them to do, which really is your own idea. And so, you know, that's, that's, and seeing your own idea implemented may not be the same thing as a compassionate resonance with, with the suffering. So it, you're right, it's, it's complicated. And the idea is to see it as clearly as you can. Because, because then you can keep yourself from getting trapped. Please. We'll hear that going. Oh, yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, what you were saying about the complicatedness of helping. Because another factor, sometimes, you know, there might be someone who has some big need of some kind of help. But then you have to measure whether if you jumped in to be the big solution to their problem, whether you're going to overdo it and end up throwing your own situation into some kind of worse jeopardy or something. That's it's certainly thing possible. That right. That's, that's why I say if you balance it with wisdom yeah. um, and, and wisdom, which means seeing things, seeing clearly just as, as it is. Compassion yeah. in the context of wisdom is okay and not, not as dangerous as if you're just... You know, blind. You know this story about the woman who bring, takes the snake in, and the snake bites her. And oh, right. yeah, you know, I was a snake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Right, yeah. So I just thought I'd throw that out. Yeah. Like I had some woman was, she needs some people. She keeps trying to find some people to help do some big major roof repair on her house. So then she keep was asking you, do I know of any volunteer organizations or something that could help her? And then I thought, oh, maybe me and some of my friends could help. But we kind of had to realize that that would just be more than we would be able to do, you know. And then I felt sort of guilty about it at first. You know? Well, if you do everything you can, yeah. you know, if your intention is is yeah. is open. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Please. Um, I just want to thank you so much for that. Um, I can ponder on this for a couple of days. I don't know how long, but for a while. But uh, the delusion around seeing the problems outside. And uh-huh. To me, the logical next step would be to question, okay, so what's messed up or screwed up inside of me? <laughs> Instead of out there, what's going on in here, right? Um, but that's a little harsh. So I guess I'm wondering what are the maybe other top um other greatest hits in terms of delusions that you've seen in your experience. <laughs> let me let me let me just let me just um, let me just reflect. It's not so much that what's screwed up is out there, and we're going to say, no, "Okay, now I'll look at what's screwed up in here." The issue isn't what's right and what's wrong. You want to look and see just simply whether whatever is present is um, pleasant or unpleasant, and what your reaction to that is. Is your reaction to the pleasant or the unpleasant to to make things worse, or to attenuate the the unpleasant experience, the suffering, or the the, re, the resistance to the way things are? So it's not a matter of it, let's look at how screwed up I am in here. True and false. You know, here's here's almost the top of the top ten list. <clears throat> is to notice how, when we talk about pleasant and unpleasant, and we don't usually think in terms of our thinking, our thoughts. So an unpleasant thought can get us just as angry, if not more, than an unpleasant physical sensation, or an unpleasant, well, physical sensation, sound, odor, you know, color, whatever. But a thought, you know, if you turn on the angry talk show people, they'll light you right up in a minute. You know, because, and what's that about? That's unpleasant, that's just an unpleasant thought. And what is, are we, I know people who are unable to listen to our president. So are we, where, are we free then? if we're unable to even do something simple like that because we're so reactive. So I would say that, that you know, looking at um, well, thoughts are the heart of, of our delusions. We make, we mistake the thought about the world with the world. We think the map is the territory. In fact, we're unable to distinguish it. So the old Zen trick about what is this? Call it a stick and I'll smack you with it. Say it's not a stick and I'll smack you with it. What is it? 
You know, because we think that the label is the thing. This, it's a stick for crying out loud. What do you mean? You know, we, we aren't able to... And we don't... We, there's, there's a sense of permanence to the concept. Think of an equilateral triangle. You guys know what one of those is, okay? So you, it came up in your mind just then. Was that the same equilateral triangle you thought of last time it came up? No. But there's a sense somehow that it is. You know, we got this platonic thing going about, you know, there's this permanent realm. And it's the same with our thoughts about ourselves. We have ideas about who we are and uh, what we're like and what we've been. These are all thoughts. And we, we, uh, we think the thoughts are, are representative of, you know, of, of the reality. When you have a thought of a unicorn, there is no such thing except in Harry Potter. And, and there's a, you know, uh, some teacher said once, the word mother, M-O-T-H-E-R, is not your mother. Now, the word is not the thing. And yet, we act as if it is. That's, that's the hugest delusion that I know. And that's, you know, um, suffering becomes a, a, a problem of language at that point because we assume that, you know, I'm cold. We, just because the syntax is set up that way, we think that, that why not just cold? You know, what about it's raining? What's raining? You know, because the, because our the way our brain works, the syntax is set up so that we think there's got to be a subject. So that's is that that help? Please. How about other pe- people's intention? You talked about different intention at the same time uh-huh. when when they when something is complicated or gets complicated then there are a lot of intentions that you you're talking about your own t- intention yes. how about if you you're mindful <laughs> of others intention <laughs> well. and that it could be wrong, couldn't, could be, you know, delusion. It's, it, but it sometimes could, it's proved that... Let's assume it is. Yes. <laughs> and our own, you know, our own delusion makes it impossible to see clearly the delusion of others. <laughs> but, but um, because it's, it's not always possible to read the mind of another. You know what I mean? So we we could very well be wrong about their intention. So it's, and generally when, when we recognize how complex the constellation of intentions that are brought to bear on any particular action are for us, boy, trying to sort that out for someone whose mind we can't get into, but we like to attribute intentions to others. Well, I know what you're trying to do. You're da 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 we, we have no clue. So the best we can do is to be really 
clearly in touch with our own intention. And if our intention is one of greed, it will feel very different than if our intention is the opposite, one of generosity. It will feel different and it will produce different results. I mean, if you think about an experience in your life where you were just spontaneously generous, you can reflect on that and it feels good to recall that. And you can, you can reflect on some, some time when you were greedy. Anybody here not have any of that? <laughs> you know, and you reflect on that and just see how that feels to recall that. And it's just unpleasant. And then, of course, we judge ourselves for that. Um, so knowing our own intention is, is the best we can do. I think if we think we know what someone else is trying to do, sometimes we don't even know what we're trying to do. So. <laughs> and then the purpose of knowing our intentions are to observe it and it would go away or would change it? Well, if you actually see what you're trying to do, it, it may change of itself. If you try to change it, there's another intention there. Right. I, I want a different intention. I don't like that intention. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Yeah. I think that one of the, um, the issues people have been uh, sort of talking around or about is when you approach a situation with your best intentions, mm-hmm. you know, let's assume that they're clear in your mind and, mm-hmm. and you're you're proceeding in good faith. Uh, people ha- have an aversion to being manipulated or taken advantage of and feel a sense of, of trying to um, guess the motivations of you know, the other people involved. And, and then if they feel like you know, that's happening, they lose a sense of where their bounds are. They may have entered into something and not know where their bounds are. Boy, there's and, a lot of wanting in there. Yeah. So um, it, it's very difficult in, in a situation like when you're trying to help somebody or whatever. And sometimes you don't know what your own bounds are and what you're, what you're willing to do. Absolutely. And there's all sorts of guilt that can come up that oh. you can do on yourself by saying, oh, you know, you know, this isn't enough. Well, why isn't it enough? It's like, do you have the skills to do more? Do you, you know, do you have the resources to do more? You know, uh, this is in this is what the Buddha fashion. called. Yeah. This is what the Buddha called the thicket of views. Yeah. <laughs> so we so get think, totally lost in that. Yeah, and I think that that you know part of understanding and, and observing and, and being aware of, of what's happening is also being aware of what your own needs and bounds are. So that you can not overextend yourself and not, you know, if somebody else comes back and tries to manipulate you, you can say, you can say, you know, thank you, no. Wow. Or, if or you can, right. People manipulate each other by, with carrots and sticks, mm-hmm. which is just another way of talking about pleasant and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, you offer, you, you, you offer pleasant or threaten hope and, the politics of hope and fear, it's the mm-hmm. same, it's the same thing. So if, you know, to not be manipulated means to be equanimous with whatever arises, mm-hmm. and and 
not find that you have to react. Mm-hmm. And, and the purpose of our practice is to see more deeply because, you know, until we start turning our attention inward rather than just outward, we don't even notice that to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it takes a while to learn. It's uh, the most complex, pro- you know, learning we can do. So, something like that. I just wanted to say that I think that if we are conscious of the fact that we may be being manipulated by another person, it seems that the most the wisest position to take in that stance would be to have compassion for that person because we've all been there and we all we all basically manipulate for power you know to some degree we all have our own ways of doing that because we all have our own needs and we all have our own you know issues that we grew up with or wherever we came from and so if we can just have compassion for ourselves, yes. it would allow us the opportunity to have compassion for the person who is or, you know, in the power struggle with us trying to manipulate us. And then it basically stops it in its tracks. It just basically diffuses it. So well, having compassion for yourself is, is certainly worthwhile. And and um, to notice just notice how frequently we do just the reverse, that we we jump to judgment about ourselves, and how harshly we judge ourselves, just internally. You know, most you know, I I know that I will I'm willing to think things about myself, and even mutter things to myself at times that I wouldn't let anybody else say. I mean, them's fighting words if somebody else says it, but I can, I can get away with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, the, and the, the tendency there is not just to, when that arises, notice, notice that it's arising. You can respond to that with aversion and add another layer of stress and, and suffering, or you can just be compassionate for yourself at that moment. And that's the mo- that's a that's moment difficult. of freedom. I'm and it's sorry. A diffi- and sometimes it's a very difficult thing to do to have oh, compassion for yourself. Absolutely. You know, one one thing that uh, about this practice, I you know, Joseph Goldstein likes to say, being mindful isn't hard. Remembering to be mindful is hard. <laughs> you know, from second to second. So, being compassionate isn't hard, but. <laughs> But, yeah, remembering. Anyone else? Did you? Yeah, please. So on the note of compassion, um, sometimes I struggle with, sometimes I struggle with how to be compassionate without being judged as being selfish. Uh Because in my profession, I mean, I, I give. I mean, that's what I do is patients come to me and I'm expected to give. Uh Um, And so with families, sometimes when I'm like 
okay, you know, I want to go away on a retreat or I want to do something on my own and just be by myself to reflect. Culturally, sometimes it's considered selfish. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's where I struggle a lot with what's considered compassionate, compassion for the self um, versus not having others view it as selfish. And I, I, and I realize that it's a practice that I just need to come to terms with on my own and not, you know, to take the self out of the picture. And even if someone else looks at me and says, you know, you're selfish or you're looking at the self, if I take the self out of it, then I, I don't take it personally and I don't get offended. But sometimes it's hard to do. It's hard. Let me, let me clarify a little bit. The Buddha's definition of compassion is it's, the, it's just simply the quivering of the heart and the presence of suffering. It's just that resonance with the suffering. So everything else that you build on, the edifice about this is what's compassionate to me, this is what's compassionate to them, this is, it's, it's only that simple resonance. And then action flows automatically. If a baby is crying, you just pick it up. Right? It's just, it just happens. Somebody stumbles on the street. You don't even have time to think. You just reach out. It just happens. You know? um, then we get into the complexity of rationalizations and this thought, you know, the realms of thought and thinking and delusion. And, you know, this is what's good for me. This is what I need. This is their needs, my needs, our needs, human needs, you know. And believing all of that, those thoughts, but but the the compassion itself is just, and and when we don't see it in others, I mean, all of us here, our lives are the same in some important ways. Unless anybody's anybody here just getting the good stuff, <laughs> you know. And so we're all experiencing that, and we don't see it when we look around the room. But when, as soon as you see it, the heart just opens. And it happens automatically, in, in my experience. Is that, is that helpful? Sure. Anyone else? Please. I don't know what time you guys turn, all turn into pumpkins. So, <laughs> so if, you, if you feel like you need to flee, please. Um, <laughs> please go. Please. And I'm happy to hang out as long as you guys want. Please, go ahead. Um, my question is um, related to the way that you described the vision in relation to the external world. Uh-huh. Is it off? Oh. Is that I don't... It's broken. It needs to be fixed. Yeah. Right. And, and then um, the question and, and brought up the state of someone who feels like, well, I'm not okay, but the world really needs help too. And I wonder if this Buddhism is very new to me. Uh huh. Um, 
the first time that I've heard suffering um, equated with dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there's any um, uh, advice for, for someone who wants to compare one's suffering to another's suffering. Ah, we like to compare. Because it, it gives us something to stand on. It gives us some certainty. It gives us a standard. We want a standard so that we can judge. And, you know, and this is also very fluid. Just notice the sensation, the experience itself, the experience of the world, your knowledge of the world and what's going on. We don't want to feel sad. We don't want to feel the pain of the world. And so we cover it over with anger. We cover it over with judgment. The idea here is just to experience the dissatisfaction. Just to notice it. First, that's the first thing. And we don't notice it because we think it's the problem is out there. Everything would be, if, we, if people would just be reasonable... And I don't know what reasonable is. Reasonable, common sense. Then every, you know, we could fix things. In the meantime, we're not paying attention to the experience of dissatisfaction because the world couldn't be different than it is at this moment. It's just simply the way it is. It's, like, it's just like this. And if we're not at peace with it, we're not at peace. Gertrude Stein was, was, was it? Oh my gosh. Okay, I'm totally lost in these. But I think it was Gertrude Stein who was dying and said, you know, I accept the world. And her partner said, well, I, I accept the universe. Well, you better. <laughs> no. Uh, we just don't, um, we don't pay attention to our own Sadness over the condition of, of, of things. And that sadness is just a reflection of how it's not the way we want. And it's not the way we want in very deep ways. And that's what the Buddha is pointing at with the first noble truth. And when, when we look for peace of mind, when we come to practice for, you know, sometimes we come thinking we're going to f- fix all our problems. You know, or somehow. You know. But when, when we can see our reactivity, what we add, the suffering that we add to a situation, by the way we make it worse, we can just stop. And then we, we at least don't make unpleasant experience pleasant. Unpleasant experience comes with the territory. You got a body, your body's going to hurt. One way or another, some, one time or another. But we can, you know, when we experience that, we can tear our hair, become anxious, get upset, rant and rave, you know, all kinds of reactions. Or we can just be with the pain, deal with it, and not make it worse. And the suffering is the making it worse part. make things worse by um, 
I, I understand and I said I can't reiterate it. <laughs> However, I, I still don't understand um, how being at peace with oneself makes anything um, like uh, how, how you cannot compare that to someone else's suffering in, in a different realm that is, that is just objectively well, when you when you see when you see suffering, the that that response within you that's the compassionate response, and then you know you do what you can to relieve suffering. That's what you do. That's what I mean. We do do that. We just often don't see it because you know there's a great little aphorism that there was a time. For a period of about six months, every time I would give a talk, I would use this aphorism because I love it so much, and it's just a thrill to be able to use it again. It's, um, it's from India, and it goes, when a pickpocket meets a saint, he only sees the saint's pockets. <laughs> so we don't see the saint. We don't see the suffering being. You know, we see someone as pushy. This person is pushy. But maybe what we're looking at is someone who who's suffering from not enough recognition, even acknowledgement. But because we experience being pushed at, and we see it in terms of ourselves, we don't, we don't see the suffering there. It doesn't mean it's not there. So what, what, we, what we want to do is to just look at the experience itself directly. And notice, and notice that experience. And not try to push it away, not try to hold on to it, not make the chocolate brownie last, you know, all night. <laughs> you know. Oh, there's, but that's judgment. That's judgment. That's not, that, notice what you're doing there is making a judgment about your own experience. So just notice the judging. What is judging like? Is that pleasant? Is that judgment itself pleasant? Is it helpful? Does it, does it create more dissatisfaction in and of itself? You just watch it. It doesn't? <laughs> well, if you don't know, that's helpful. <laughs> when you, you know, the one who's deluded and thinks he's not deluded, that's real delusion. <laughs> so at least if you don't know, or if you, if you know that you're deluded, that's helpful too. Because then you, then, then you don't trust this, this, you know. Um, you know, the idea is to, is to examine as you're sitting during your meditation. Sometimes those things will come up and you'll notice them and you'll be able to notice pleasant, unpleasant. You'll notice that they arise and they pass. And you'll notice anger and you'll notice longing and sadness. And all those things will appear and will become, you be, can develop skill at noticing just what's arising 
You know, as the more you do it, the better you get. And um, is that is that helpful? Yes. Yeah. Good. Comparison is in service of something else, some other intention. To be righteous, you know, somehow, or to be justified, but it's in the service of another intention. Is there a need to compare? It's, but we do it. And it's one of the last things the Buddha says is one of the last things to go. So it's going to be with us for a while. <laughs> that comparison, that judgment. You know, you certainly, you, well, you, you can't, you don't experience their neurology. But, but in order to even perceive their suffering, it, it's necessary to be able to perceive your own. And so when you think, I'm not suffering, but the world is a mess, we're not noticing, you know, our own dissatisfaction with the messy world. Uh huh. Um, you are your, you know, you can only experience your own experiences. You can't experience someone else's experiences. That's, that's correct. And, and so, you know, when you're trying, you see somebody else who's, who's you know, has a misfortune and, and you feel empathy for them, and that's good, but at the same time, it seems to me that it's important to understand that. That's not you. And that, that you, know, you can understand how what your reaction is, what you feel about, what you observe there, but that that's your reaction to what you observe. Well. And, and as opposed to, you're not responsible for what they're feeling. You don't know what they're feeling. If, if, someone, if someone is crying on the street, And you and 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 there's a, there's some there's resonance. There can be resonance, or there might be no resonance. You might go, oh, what are they doing on the street in the first place? They ought to be, you know, cleaning themselves up and getting a job. And maybe, you know, what what did they do? They're probably, you know, drunk and whatever. And you can go off on on that stuff and not even encounter the sadness, the pain. Please. Thank you guys for coming as you, as you head out. Thank you for, for your practice. It seems like a lot of this um, awareness of um, kind of the suffering or the problems out there in the world have to do with this whole per- predominance of mass media that's only occurred in the last 
50, 80 years, right? So it seems like it's almost unnatural for us to be so aware of so much suffering in the world. Oh, and so know. it's almost like if it's localized as it was 100, 200 years ago, then it's more able to be dealt well, with, maybe? I don't know. This more. kind of comparison may, may not be particularly helpful. <laughs> if, you were, if, you were, if you were living, you know, 500 years ago, you probably had immediate family members, a lot of them who died while you were young, you know, and a lot of sickness and a lot of disability and just a lot of, of intense um, loss. So it's very different, and we can't even imagine. So to, to make that comparison, I'm not sure how helpful it is. Okay. It might make us feel better. It's not our fault. <laughs> but, but suffering isn't about fault. I mean, the Buddha was said, he, he formulated the, the, the uh, Four Noble Truths 2,500 years ago. So he may not have been able to drive a Jeep, um, and he may not have experienced road rage, but he understood, understood suffering. <laughs> I've come across, in my very beginning reading, um, something to the extent um, all emotion is suffering, and I'm having difficulty understanding that. Understanding that? It's not. It's. It's. Let me let me say this. The Buddha was not trying to lay out a map that he said, here's how it is, learn it. This is not a catechism. What he was doing was, was describing the terrain that, that he saw as the result of his practice. And so his invitation to you is, check it out. Check it out yourself and see just what, what these emotions are about. How pleasant are they? What are they about? What is your experience of them? Do you want them to continue? Do you want them to, to end? You know, if it's something you want to have last, I want this to keep going. There's, there's desire there. Because, you know, of course, it won't. No. Um, Could it be framed as all attachment to emotion is suffering? Well, you know, that's an interest, That's a really interesting question. There's a there's a um, a very famous it's very famous uh, poem. One of the Zen patriarchs. The the line, the couplet is 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 really well known. It goes, "The great way is not difficult for one who has no preferences." And there are people who want to say, "The great way is not." Difficult for one who's not attached to preferences. Because preferences arise and pass. And then it may be, may be possible to say, for the one who has no preferences, the great way is not difficult. Who is that who has no preferences? And that sounds like a Zen koan. But it's pointing at... Uh, something, but the but but um, the idea here is that the Buddha is asking you to look and see, because then when you look and see, you'll you'll know for yourself. You know, is any emotion satisfying? 
satisfactory? Well, thank you, and thank you for your practice.